Welcome to a series of podcasts brought to you by the Yale Law School. Philip Kirsch, president of the International Criminal Court, discusses the creation and inner workings of the ICC as an international independent court and its future challenges. President Kirsch's lecture was the inaugural Judge John O. Newman lecture on global justice at Yale Law School. Well, thank you very much, Dean Co, for that very generous introduction. Uh, it really is a great honor for me to deliver uh, Yale Law School's uh, inaugural Judge John O. Newman lecture on global justice and to do so in the presence of uh, Judge Newman himself. Uh, Judge Newman's work um, shows the importance of cooperation and mutual learning that can flow between national and international judicial mechanisms. And so it really is more than an honor now that I have met Judge Newman. It's also a great pleasure for me to give this lecture and to be, to be a tribute to all you have done in this area. This relationship between national and international judicial uh, mechanisms is something to which I will come back later, later on. But for the moment, I just would like to, to thank you all for your interest in the International Criminal Court and for having given me this opportunity to speak today. Since I'm supposed to speak up to 45 minutes, uh, I will reassure you by saying there are four parts in this, so you can get, gain hope as you go through one. There will be <laughs> one is the need for the court and its creation, and since uh, Judge Dean Coe already said half of what I intended to say, this is good news. <laughs> then key features of the court, then the court today, and what we should expect from the court in the future. I will start with the need for the court. The ICC was created in response to a historical need. The last century alone saw millions of children, women, men fall victims of atrocities such as genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. Very often, perpetrators enjoyed impunity, and the fact that they enjoyed impunity encouraged other people to be perpetrators. The consequences of crimes committed on that scale when they remain unpunished have, are, of course, very serious on the individuals, but also for national and regional stability and for entire populations. Uh, the preamble of the Rome Statute says that such grave crimes threaten the peace, security, and well-being of the world. Now, for those crimes, as for any other crimes, the first responsibility for punishment belongs to national systems. The problem is that it is precisely when massive crimes are committed that national systems have the most difficulty or are the most unwilling to punish those crimes. And that is really why international criminal law had to be created. The objectives of international criminal law generally are to punish individuals for sure, to bring justice to victims, over time to contribute to the deterrence of potential perpetrators, and the building of a culture of accountability. The preamble of the ICC statute does say firmly that the determination of states' parties to put an end to impunity and thus to contribute to the prevention of such crimes. Those objectives are not new. 
the problem of grave crimes going unpunished is certainly not new either. And the idea of creating an international criminal jurisdiction to punish those crimes go, goes back at least to the League of Nations. As we all know, the first uh, international criminal tribunals were, were set up at Nuremberg and Tokyo after World War II. But the conditions were not ripe to go further until the uh, 1990s. And at the end of the Cold War, uh, two tribunals were established by the Security Council on the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. The merit of those tribunals was to show that international criminal justice could work in practice. They were pioneers, and this court, the ICC, benefited a lot from the work of those tribunals, both substantively and procedurally. But all those tribunals, uh, ad hoc tribunals, had built-in built in limitations. In all cases, only a few states participated in their, in their creation. In the case of modern ad hoc tribunals, it was the Security Council, comprising five states, five, uh, 15 states, five of which have right of veto. Then they were limited to specific geographic locations. They respond primarily to events in the past, and the establishment every time not only involves extensive costs and delays, but depends on the political will of the international community, and we all have seen that that will has been very uneven depending on circumstances. So both the punishment function and the deterrence function of those tribunals are, are limited. It became clear to states that you needed a permanent international court, criminal court, to respond to the most serious crimes and to overcome the, the limitations of the ad hoc tribunals. With the end of the Cold War, it became possible again to think of the creation of the ICC, and in 1989, the UN resumed work on the establishment of the ICC. This led to the 1998 uh, UN General Assembly convening, uh, which convened um, the conference which established the ICC. I'm going to be careful about the, uh, the, the Rome conference because there is at least one person in the room who was there. And if I slip, I'm sure I'll be told. <laughs> and also, I don't have that much time, so I'm just going to, to make a couple of remarks. One is that it was really a massive undertaking. 160 states attended and hundreds of NGOs. The document that was presented to the Rome Conference by the preparatory committee that had worked on the issue before contained, when the conference began, 1,400 square brackets. But 1,400 square brackets meant 1,400 points of difference among states. The first observation I would like to make is that the purpose of the, the approach was very different from the creation of any previous international tribunal. For the first time of, of, in history, the international community was ready to establish a permanent independent criminal court and to do so by treaty. Now the treaty approach 
meant for the court to have, to, to have legitimacy, indeed for the court to be viable in the long term, you needed a large consensus. You needed the confidence of a, a vast number of states. The second observation I will make about the Rome Conference is that there were very many different visions of what the court should be. There was agreement, more or less enthusiastic, about creating the court. There was agreement that the court had to be a purely judicial institution, not a political body, and that the court should, should ensure due process and fair trial. But there were huge disagreements on very important issues, and I'll mention only a few. The role of the UN Security Council, the role of the prosecutor, the definition of crimes, and the scope of personal jurisdiction. In my judgment, and subject to being corrected, it is the latter point, the scope of personal jurisdiction, which I think triggered the vote, a vote at the end of the Rome Conference. Without that, it might have been avoided, but that was the, the, the determining factor. Behind all that, there was, I think, a much broader underlying issue, and that was to what extent should the court be independent and to what extent should it be controlled? And if it had to be controlled, how could it be controlled? That, to me, to this day remains a very important issue at the time. And third, and finally on the Rome Conference, the combination of those factors, that is a common, really ambitious undertaking, but very disparate, disparate visions, meant that the five weeks allocated to the conference was not really enough to allow a proper technical review of the results. Any number of working groups and subgroups worked in parallel and reported to the Committee of the Whole, which had the responsibility to put all those elements together with the assistance of a drafting committee. The result was a very complex document without any real possibility of examining sufficiently and, if necessary, reconciling the relationship among uh, various provisions and chapters. Hence, a number of difficulties of interpretation today. Then, of course, you will ask, being reasonable people as you are, why then did the conference not convene a second session instead of rushing to a conclusion? The reason is that many states considered that a second session would be even more difficult than the first for particular reasons and might even be prevented from taking place. So, the general view was you have to finish, and you have to finish this time, even if you have to pay a price. Mindful of the importance of broad support for the future of the court, there really were many efforts to find general agreement uh, in Rome, and those efforts were largely but not totally successful. At the end of the conference, the text of the treaty was adopted by 120 votes in favor, seven against, and 21 abstentions. 
The final act of the Rome Conference uh, created a preparatory commission. Uh, that was a body that was tasked with uh, drafting a number of documents that the court uh, or the Assembly of States Party supporting the court would need in practice. The two most important were the rules of procedure and evidence, which the court is still using today, and the elements of crimes. I mentioned the preparatory commission largely because the Rome, the Rome conference ended in a very divisive atmosphere. And everybody knew that it was necessary to do something to improve the, uh, a common disposition towards the court through the preparatory commission. And so for three and a half years, uh, all decisions in the preparatory commission were taken by consensus, and all doc documents that it adopted were adopted by consensus. The point was being to, to enhance the universal character of the court. And it did work. The, the, the deadline for signing the statute was the 31st of December 2000, and at that time, 139 states signed the statute, which was 19 more than the 120 states that had voted for it. To me, it is a, a unique, unprecedented uh, event in the history of international treaty negotiations because normally what happens is that you vote for a, a, an instrument that you kind of don't mind and then you forget about it. So, so the, the, this, this crescendo in the case of the Rome Statute showed that there was first enormous momentum at the time behind the court and international mm -hmm. criminal justice and that the process of reconciliation had begun to work. That, of course, was not the end of it. Uh, the statute had to be ratified by uh, fifth, uh, 60 countries, which is a relatively high number, and reflected the, be the belief among states that the court should be broadly support, supported before it came into being. In 98, I think people expected the Rome Statute to enter into force after 15 years. Those, are, those were the optimists. The pessimists talked about 50 years, or never. And then what happens, the ICC was uh, formally established, that is, the statute entered in, in, into force on the 1st of July 2002. Now, um, almost 10 years after the adoption of the uh, Rome Statute, 105 states uh, have ratified the statutes, the most recent being Japan. This ends my first part on creation of the court. There's progress. Then the features, the, the features of the court. I will name. I will talk about three of them. One is the jurisdiction of the court. Many states wanted a court that would be extremely strong, that would have a wide jurisdiction. In fact, uh, NGOs. Uh, took a tally at some point that showed that most states favored universal jurisdiction for the court. That was not what happened. That was not what happened because the conference was aware that you needed, again, to have widespread support for the court. And for that, 
you, you needed at the beginning to start with jurisdictional grounds that were firmly established in law, not only international law, but domestic law. And those were the territory jurisdiction based jurisdiction and the nationality based jurisdiction. So the court only has jurisdiction when crimes are committed on the territory of a state party or crimes are committed by nationals of states' parties. This did not satisfy everyone, th this alternative. You need either the consent of the state of the territory of the crime or the consent of the state of the nationality of the accused. Some would have liked that the and become a, th th that the or become an end, and, so that you would need both to, for the court to have jurisdiction. That was not accepted. That was not accepted because historically it, could, it, it was obvious that in cases of massive commission of crimes, at the very least, agents of the state were extre very often accomplices involved in the crimes. So it, to, to, to ask also for the consent of the, national, the state of the nationality of the accused every time amounted to a court that really would have very little work indeed. A special role is recognized for the Security Council. Under the statute, the Security Council may refer situations to the court. It no longer has to create ad hoc tribunals as it did for former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. It has already used that power by referring the situation of in Darfur, Sudan, to the court. The Security Council also, acting under Chapter 7 of the Charter, may defer an investigation or prosecution for a period of 12 months, and the court has to follow the uh, request of the Security Council. The jurisdiction of the court is limited in time. It is not retroactive. Uh, the court, the ICC, has jurisdiction only over events since its statute entered into force on the 1st of July 2002. Now, turning to crimes, uh, the, the, the court has jurisdiction only over the most serious international crimes of concern to the international community as a whole. The ICC is not a human rights court in, in a traditional sense. It only has jurisdiction over genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. And that jurisdiction, of course, is over individuals, not states. The statute also provides that the court has jurisdiction over the crime of aggression. And the crime of aggression, which was very symbolic uh, for many states, is listed in the, li in the list of crimes uh, in the statute. But the court does not have operational jurisdiction on it now because there was no, no agreement on the definition of aggression and because there was no agreement either on the conditions for the exercise of jurisdiction of the court over that crime. And so for aggression to become operational, as it were, you need an, an amendment to the statute. This was for jurisdiction, and now I'm turning to uh, what's called complementarity. At the beginning of my talk, in speaking about the contributions of uh, Judge Newman, I mentioned that the interplay uh, between national and international judicial mechanisms is very much 
at the heart of the ICC system. I, ju I have just set out the conditions for the ICC's jurisdiction. But it is important to note that even where the court has jurisdiction, it will not necessarily act. The court is often referred to as being a court of last resort, and I think this is an apt description. It is intended to act only where national courts are unwilling or unable to exercise their own jurisdiction. The principle is that a case will be inadmissible if it is being or, ha or has been investigated or prosecuted by, the, by a state having jurisdiction. But there is an exception. When the state is unwilling or unable genuinely to carry out the investigation or prosecution. For example, if the proceedings were undertaken solely to shield the person from criminal responsibility, or if the proceedings were carried out in a manner inconsistent with an intent to bring the person to justice. A case will also be inadmissible if it is not of sufficient gravity to justify action by the court. In such cases, both states and the accused have the right to challenge the admissibility of a case. I said that one point of agreement among states attending the uh, Rome Conference was that the court had to be a purely judicial institution and had to observe due process and particularly the rights of the accused, which are common to national and international legal systems. Those rights include, of course, the right to be presumed innocent, the right to be properly informed and in detail of the nature, cause, and content of the charge, the right to, to counsel, and the right not to be compelled to testify or to confess guilt. I won't dwell on it. I suggest you watch Law and Order. <laughs> These are the same principles and in more fun. The, the one, there's another feature, though, that I would like to mention, which is the, the, a, a very great innovation in the system, which is the, the place that the system gives to victims. Victims have a substantial role to play in the court's proceedings, subject to the requirements of the rights of the, of the accused and the guarantee of a fair trial. In previous cases of other tribunals, victims participated in proceedings by giving evidence if called as witnesses. In the ICC system, victims may participate in proceedings even when not called at witnesses, and indeed, this is happening every day. The court, the court has also the power to order reparations to victims, including restitution, compensation, and rehabilitation, and a trust fund has been established uh, for that purpose. The need to take into account the particular interests of victims of violence against women and children is also specifically built in the statute. So these are a few, the few uh, features of the, of the court, of the statute that I wanted to mention. 
So where has all that led us today? First off, I think I have to explain how the court can be involved with different situations. There are three ways in which the, the jurisdiction of the court can be triggered. First, a state party may refer a situation alleging crimes committed by a national or on the territory of a state party. Second, the UN Security Council. I said it may refer a um, situation to the court, and that is independent of the nationality of the perpetrator or the location of the crimes. And third, the prosecutor may begin an investigation on his own initiative into crimes committed on the territory of a state party or by a national or of, of a state party. And he can do so on the basis of information received from any credible source. But in that case, contrary to the other situations, the prosecutor can only launch an investigation with the, the authorization of a pretrial chamber of judges. So far, uh, three states parties have referred situations on their territories, and the Security Council, as I, as I mentioned, has referred the situation in Darfur, Sudan. In all four situations, the prosecutor began investigations, and those situations are Uganda, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Darfur, and the Central African Republic. Apart from that, the prosecutor has by now received over 3,000 communications, that is from the 1st of July 2002 to now, from various sources, uh, primarily from individuals and uh, NGOs, um, requesting essentially the court to investigate certain situations. The vast majority of those communications were dismissed by the prosecutor, I think over 80%. Uh, because uh, they were manifestly outside the jurisdiction of the court. Uh, for example, because the crimes did not meet the definitions of the crimes in, under the statute, or because the, uh, they were committed before July 2002, or because the situations involved only uh, non-state parties, and that happened, of course, in recent conflicts. On the question of the Congo, uh, a first person was surrendered to court in 2006, uh, accused of conscripting and enlisting children under the age of 15 years and using them to participate actively in hostilities. The, charge, uh, the charges were confirmed. Uh, the trial is set to begin in June of this year. Again, in the same situation, uh, two other people were transferred to the court uh, one in October last year and the other one a couple of weeks ago on the whole series of allegations of uh, crimes against humanity and war crimes, including murder, sexual slavery, and inhumane treatment, using children under the age of 15 years to participate actively in hostilities and pillaging. The court is considering whether those two cases which bear on the same facts uh, should be joined. In the case of Uganda, uh, arrest warrants were issued uh, for five members of the Lord's Resistance Army, including its leader, Joseph Kony. 
In that case, uh, the, the alleged crimes against humanity and war crimes, again, include sexual enslavement, rape, intentionally attacking civilians, and the forced enlistment of child soldiers. One of those people were, was killed. The four uh, Orest Warrens uh, are outstanding and remain in effect, but not executed. With respect to Darfur, uh, in May of last year, the court issued warrants of arrest for crimes against humanity and war crimes against, uh, again, a variety of charges against uh, a former Minister of State for the Interior of the Government of Sudan and currently Minister of State for Humanitarian Affairs and against a leader of the militia Janjaweed. The last situation, the Central African Republic uh, has not yet uh, been brought to, to chambers. The prosecutor visited the Central African Republic uh, about a month ago to meet with victims, representatives of civil society and the local population. The ICC, therefore, has not completed a full cycle of judicial proceedings from arrest to trial, but the court um, has embarked on this very difficult task of interpreting uh, very sensitive parts of the statute. I'll give you uh, two examples. One we knew would be complex, and that is the question of working out the modalities of victims' participation in proceedings. Um, when does a person become a victim? And once the person has become a victim, when can the person intervene? Is it at the pretrial stage, the trial stage, the appeals stage? And once the victim has started, does that mean that the victim has the right to continue to participate without further authorizations? This requires a lot of very difficult decisions. The second one, the second example I would like to give you, um, which is more complicated in practice than we had anticipated, is the question of disclosure of evidence. And that is to ensure the right balance between appropriate disclosure of evidence by the prosecutor to the defense, while at the same time protecting the security of victims and witnesses. And this brings me to one core difficulty for the court that it has had from the beginning and is the only international court to have, to have had, which is that the ICC operates everywhere in situations of conflict. The court has operational activities in the field. It has five field offices, uh, two in Congo, one in Uganda, one in Chad, and one in the Central African Republic. The field offices are a, a critical part of the court's work and represent the public face of the court. And it, it, they have a variety of uh, functions. One, of course, is to assist uh, the, the, um, the prosecutor to facilitate victims' applications for participations and uh, reparations, protecting and relocating witnesses, supporting defense counsel, and conducting outreach to local populations, which is a very important part of the work because for any population to assist the court, they have to understand what the court is and how it acts. The fact that the court is active in situations of ongoing conflict where crimes continue to be committed means that the main concrete problem of the court 
in the field is security. Security, safety of staff, victims, witnesses, and other at risk. And again, there are proceedings on that too. Um, is it only the victims and witnesses and families who should be protected? Or all, also other people who are manifestly in danger but are not specifically listed among the people to be protected in the applicable instruments? These are very serious questions. The security, uh, the security in the field has been so bad that um, a, nev a number of missions of the prosecutor and the registry had to be cancelled, and the field of some of the field offices were, were closed altogether for periods of time. I won't dwell on other challenges: the logistics, communications, transport, transportation. Uh, you have to go 3,000 kilometers without roads. It's, it's difficult, and local languages. And all that slow down, slows down not only field operations, but also proceedings, because proceedings depend on uh, witnesses, uh, testimonies being available, and uh, information reaching the court. There is one silver lining to this, and that is that the deterrent effect of the court has come a lot earlier than had been anticipated. I think in Rome, it was largely expected that before anyone would, would take notice of the court and therefore begin to consider one's own behavior in terms of commission of crimes, it would take years, full cycles, many trials, all that. The fact that we are operating in situations of conflicts gave immediate notice to certain high leader perpetrators that there was a danger. And certainly, at least in one situation, uh, from one day to the next, the, the level of crimes dropped because of that. So at least that is an achievement which has happened. Now, for the, my very last and very short section on the future of the court, the credibility of the court, of course, does depend on itself. The court has to show that it is effective, that it is impartial, that it respects due process, that it is non-political. But even if the court behaves perfectly in achieving all that, there remains a problem. And that is that the court is only a part of a larger system of international law and justice. In other words, when states created the ICC, they created a system designed on two pillars. The court is the judicial pillar, but there's also an enforcement pillar, and the enforcement pillar belongs to states. In a national system, the question, is, the question does not arise because courts can rely automatically on the enforcement powers of the state. But in the case of the ICC, the two have been separated. The outstanding arrest warrants highlight just how important this is. I have already mentioned that the court issued requests for arrest and surrender to states in the different situations. And that is because the court does not have the power itself to arrest these persons. No police, no army. That is the responsibility of states and, by extension, international organizations which have to all do get their mandates from states. 
that because without arrests, there, there could be no trials. There are all sorts of other ways in which the court uh, depends on, uh, on cooperation of states, executing searches, seizure, uh, getting information, uh, agreements uh, on relocation of witnesses, on enforcement of sentences. But the question of executing arrest warrants remains, the, to me, the major long-term challenge for the court. There is a different but important role for the NGOs in this too. And <clears throat> NGOs have played uh, a very large role in this. Uh, first, before the court was created, uh, they really pushed for the creation of the court, but also afterwards in helping states develop legislation that they need, implementing the statute, uh, disseminating information uh, about the court, building awareness of the court. And here, of course, academic and judicial communities also have a particularly important role in connection in relation to the court. My own view is that ignorance is one of the biggest obstacles to the success of the court. Uh, opposition to the court is often based on absolutely wrong misconceptions that can be avoided just with a little bit of a better understanding and knowledge. And that is important because after all, the eventually su eventual success of the court will depend on the degree to which it reaches universality. It can't be a European court or even a European and African court or even a European, African, Latin American court. It has to be everywhere. And that depends, of course, on the way the court proves itself, but also on how communities that do understand those issues convey that understanding to uh, decision makers. And so there we are. Uh, the, the creation of the court was good, but it was only the beginning. It does stand as a permanent institution capable of punishing perpetrators of the worst offenses known to mankind, but we must continue our efforts to ensure that the court has the necessary support. Now, I will be happy, I think, to answer questions. But, as I was saying earlier today to a group of students who were not very happy about it, I don't comment on policies of states. I don't comment on specific situations. I don't comment on the policies of the prosecutor. And I don't speculate on what the court could do if this and that. If you're still interested, I'm here. 